You're listening to the Freedom House Podcast. We're a house that will empower you in your walk with Christ to get free, live free, and set others free. This is our Sunday service series. For more information, go to FHUS.org. Enjoy. All right. So this morning, my message is called, Are You Pursuing Comfort or Christ? I know. Everyone's like, oh man, why did I come to church today? Um, I promise it's going to be exciting. Just wait till the end of the message. Um, So before we get into it, I do want to qualify this message by saying what I am not saying. Um, So I am not saying that comfort is bad or that taking time to relax or be physically refreshed is bad. My whole goal here is talking about the source of where our comfort actually comes from. So when we are needing comfort, when we are seeking comfort, are we turning to natural things to provide us with that comfort? Or are we actually turning to spiritual things to provide comfort for us? Um, So that is the lens that we are starting with as we dive into this. Um, So I want to start off by taking a look at the life of Jesus and just how uncomfortable and often inconvenient his ministry actually was to him. So we're going to start in Luke 4 verses 1 through 2. And it says, Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. So I don't know about you guys, but fasting for 40 days sounds extremely uncomfortable to me. That is not something that I personally have done before, but I can only imagine how uncomfortable that was and how hungry Jesus actually was. Um, I remember when I first came to Freedom House, I was a brand new baby Christian, was just learning about the things of God. And um, every you know January, we do a corporate fast. And so it was my first time fasting. And I was going to um, be very spiritual and do a three-day liquid fast. And I was very excited about it. But within like two hours of starting it, I'm like, this is a terrible idea. Like, how am I going to get through three days of doing this? And I'm going to be very honest, I was a baby about it. It was really difficult for me because I had never fasted before. And I remember going to Jamba Juice and getting like the most fully loaded calorie dense smoothie that I could possibly have in liquid form. So it counted because I was so starving that I was like, oh my gosh, like I need something, you know? So it was like the peanut butter, chocolate, something or another, 1500 calories, you know, but I was fasting. I was fasting. There's no condemnation. You know, we all start at different places, but I remember how difficult those three days were for me. And after just being a few hours into it, I was immediately questioning my life decision and wondering if I was in fact going to be able to do this for three days. So I'm just thinking about 40 days with no food, how challenging that actually was and how uncomfortable that was for Jesus. Um, Matthew 8, verse 20. But Jesus replied, Foxes have dens to live in, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. The nature of Jesus's ministry meant that he was constantly on the move. He was traveling from city to city, 
And it's very different than a ministry that you would see nowadays where maybe they have a speaking occasion in Santa Cruz and then, you know, San Jose and then Palo Alto and, you know, up to San Francisco and they're driving beautiful Highway 17 to get to all of these places. And it's a very different type of ministry, the uncomfortability of it. Jesus was physically walking from city to city. He was often sleeping, you know, outside in uncomfortable places. And so when he's saying, you know, that he doesn't have anywhere to lay his head, it wasn't like this really glamorous picture of this ministry, you know, where it's like they have the great music and the awesome lights. And it's like, you're getting to be a part of this. There was a cost that actually was paid in order for him to do that level of ministry. There was something that Jesus actually, it cost him in order to do that. He was uncomfortable. He was constantly on the move. It wasn't like he was going home every night and sleeping in his nice cushy bed under safe shelter. It was a different type of cost that Jesus paid to be able to do that type of ministry. And I think nowadays, sometimes, you know, we see the really fancy ministries and we're like, oh, you know, I want to be a part of that because it looks very glamorous on the outside. But there is a cost in order to have the glory of God. I know Pastor Robert talks about that so much here at Freedom House. There is a cost that has to be paid in order to have the glory of God there. And back in Jesus's day, the cost was very great. <laughs> you know, the cost was very great compared to what it costs us nowadays. Um, Matthew four twenty four. <clears throat> News about him spread as far as Syria, and people soon began bringing to him all who were sick, and whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Jesus was always on. He was always doing ministry. So you have to think about not only was Jesus ministering physical healing to people, but he was often ministering emotional healing as well. There was traumas and hangups that people had often associated with the physical ailments that they had. And so not only was there a really great physical toll for him, but even emotionally and spiritually, he was constantly pouring out. All of the time, people were being brought to him. And then when those people left, his disciples were around him. And yes, that could be refreshing sometimes, but it also meant that he was pouring into them. And so there was very few times that he actually pulled himself away, was only with the Lord to get refilled. But all of those other times, there was so many different people around him that were pulling on him to learn from him, to gain from him what he had. And that is a huge toll for him to take. The last verse that I want to look at is Matthew 26, um, verse 36 through 45. Then Jesus went to them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. 
Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, my father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time saying the same things again. Then he came to the disciples and said, go ahead and sleep, have your rest. But look, the time has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. So there's a few things about this right before these verses happened. This is when um, Jesus was talking to Peter and Peter was like, I'm never going to deny you, Lord. And Jesus was like, actually, you are. And he was like, no, I'm not. And then, you know, a couple of verses later, all of a sudden he's falling asleep on Jesus in one of his greatest hours. When Jesus just said, I want you to watch and pray with me for an hour. (laughs) And he came back and Peter was sleeping. And then again, and they were sleeping. And if you can imagine, Jesus even expressed to them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And I would imagine like if I was Jesus, I'd leave, you know, and come back and the disciples are like interceding in tongues and like praying over me and covering me. And yet he comes back and they're passed out sleeping at one of his darkest hours, his greatest moments of need. And these people that he surrounded himself with are not even able to stay awake and pray with him for an hour. Like that would, for me, would be kind of (laughs) discouraging. Like, hey, you know, it's just an hour. Like stand up, walk around a little bit, keep yourself awake. You know, there's options here. But it was like they didn't treat the situation with a level of importance. They totally devalued what was happening and in a moment when they actually had an opportunity to be the ones to stand up and support Jesus, they were found sleeping. Jesus was in a very difficult situation. You know, it said that his grief was crushing him to the point of death. And yet these people around him were not even able to stay awake for an hour. I mean, imagine how difficult that was. So these are just a few examples that I wanted to share of um, some of the physical comfort that Jesus gave up in order for him to walk in the high call of God on his life. And again, like I said at the beginning, comfort is not a bad thing. It goes back to what is our source and where are we actually pulling from. Getting uncomfortable and allowing ourselves to be inconvenient is good. It actually produces growth on the inside of us. So today, what we're going to cover is what is comfort and why do we seek it? How does the world try to provide this comfort? What happens when we choose to get uncomfortable and trust God? And how can we access the true source of comfort? So what is comfort and why do we seek it? The definition of comfort is the easing or alleviation of a person's feelings of grief or distress, a state of physical ease. Um, prosperity and the pleasant lifestyle secured by it. Um, Some synonyms are cozy, easy, restful, snug. It makes me want to take a nap just reading that. I'm like, oh, that sounds so like pleasant, you know. Um, All of these words encourage serenity and even complacency, being in a position of physical ease. And again, there is a time for us to be cozy and have rest and all of these things. But if that becomes our primary pursuit, then it is going to prevent us from pursuing after the things that God actually wants us to. Because I am going to let you guys know right now, you're going to be uncomfortable. There's going to be situations that are going to cause discomfort on the inside of us that are going to be inconvenient to us. And it's our choice on how we handle those that is 
going to determine what is actually produced in our life. Because if the only thing that we are pursuing is natural comfort all of the time, I promise you that you're going to miss opportunities that God actually has for you. Comfort is a natural human response. So in our flesh, in our our natural human flesh, we are actually wired to avoid pain and feelings of discomfort. So that is the natural inclination that we have. If something starts happening that is uncomfortable, our natural desire is to run away from that thing and run to what is going to make us feel cozy and snug. That is our natural human desire on the inside of us. When we feel uncertain about something, when we feel stressed, when we feel worried, it naturally, it drives us to want to pursue after comfort. And so the key is if we already have a natural drive to pursue after comfort, we just have to make sure that we are determining what is comfort in the right way. Because if the natural drive is, okay, I need comfort, we need to make sure that we're going to the right source and not just pursuing after natural comfort. That natural desire to stay in a comfortable place is one of the greatest hindrances to us growing. So we have to be really aware of that because growing requires us to get uncomfortable. Growing is inconvenient sometimes. Growing is, you know, it can feel super uncomfortable when we're stretching, God's doing something on the inside of us. But if we want to stay stagnant and stay right where we're at, we stay comfortable. If we want something more, we have to make a decision to get uncomfortable. So recently I had a fundraising event at work. And um, for those of you that don't know where I work, I work for a nonprofit organization. and um, I help raise you know, funds for all of the programs. And we had this fundraising event where we invited a bunch of our different partners to come down and they had the opportunity to hear testimonies from some of the men who had gone through the residential recovery program, how their lives had been transformed, what God was doing, how they had been restored. And um, these, these gentlemen are a little bit rough around the edges. You know, many of them are brand new believers in Christ. They're just learning. A lot of them are coming out of um, a drug background, you know, gang lifestyle, all of those kinds of factors. So, you know, I was working with one of the gentlemen as we're getting ready for the panel, and I was talking to him about his outfit on what he was going to wear for the panel discussion. And he like had just gone out and bought these really fancy new like Nikes and he had the red polo shirt on and he was going to wear his baseball hat. And I told him, you know, I'm like, I have to be honest with you. It it looks a little gangster. Like, I don't know if that's a feel that we're trying to go for, for this event. You know, if I'm being honest with you, I'm like, I think, you know, we're trying to go for something a little bit more professional and how we're presenting ourselves. And so we're going back and forth and having this conversation and What he says to me is that, well, this is just who I am. People are just trying to change me. And so right away, I was like, okay, I need to be very careful how I respond to this. You know, I'm like, filter my response. You know, again, he he is brand new in his pursuit after God. And so what I told him is no one is trying to change you, but different situations require different things. And in order for you to mature and grow, you need to understand what is actually appropriate for this situation that you're in. This isn't about you. It's not about the outfit that you want to wear. It's about what you are communicating communicating to the people that are coming to hear the testimony of how you've been transformed. And I don't think the gangster outfit is communicating how you have changed on the inside of you. (laughs) 
And thank God, I mean, you know, I can talk to him like this, you know, and we're still, we're still fine, you know, but he, he had a really difficult time understanding that this requires a different level of maturity. And for him, it was like, you're trying to change me. And for me, I'm like, no, you, you are growing and maturing and you wouldn't go to a wedding and wear shorts and a tank top to a wedding because it's not appropriate. For this situation, there's different attire that is appropriate, you know? And so then um, another one of the gentlemen jump into the conversation and he's like, yeah, well, you know, God just accepts us how we are. And I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I need to filter my response, filter my response. And I'm like, okay, listen, I'm going to get on my soapbox for a second and teach you something. Yes, you can come to God how you are, but I promise you God wants to change you. God does not mean for you to stay exactly how you are the entire time. He means for you to reflect Jesus. In order for us to reflect Jesus, we have to change. So yes, you do in fact need to change as you are in relationship with God. That is a requirement. God even says that we are meant to die to ourselves. <laughs> you know, crucify our flesh. That requires us changing. If we want Christ to come alive on the inside of us and for us to be able to represent Christ, that means our old self needs to die. And so we're, you know, at the end of this conversation, I finally got him to not wear the baseball hat. So that was... <laughs> That was my concession. I was like, I'll take my small victory, you know? Um, but it just, you know, I share it as kind of a funny story, but it's such an example of how we can get so used to what is familiar and comfortable. And when someone comes and says something like that, instead of seeing it as this is an opportunity for me to grow and mature in the things of God, for me to grow and mature as a man, as I'm becoming an adult, it was seen as an attack of like, oh, well, you want me to change. And I'm like, I don't want you to change. God does. So take it up with him. You know, that's what he said, not me. But it's true, you know, I think we can have this, this idea sometimes, and I hear it all the time, and I, I know people are well-meaning, like, yes, you can come to God as you are, you don't need to clean yourself up to come to him, but being in relationship requires you to clean yourself up. God actually has a way that we are meant to approach him and he's very clear about it in scripture. So yes, the goal is you come as you are, but then once you come, you actually change so that you are being transformed into the image of his son, Jesus. That means that we are constantly changing. It's not just one season of, oh, I'm going to change a little bit, you know, and then I'm good and I'm comfortable with where I'm at. It requires us to constantly be in a state of allowing Christ to transform us on the inside. Me and my own natural self, I do not, tr I do not represent Christ very well. If I'm doing what Melanie wants to do and I'm you know, just thinking about those things, I'm not being a good ambassador or representative for Christ. And I know that. And because of that, I'm like, I'm taking that scripture very seriously that I must die so that he might live on the inside of me. Because naturally, our natural desire is to pursue comfort. It is not to pursue change. But God actually wants us to change, to transform, to represent, and be an ambassador for his son. 
You know, I think we, um, you know, we can get very comfortable with our Christianese sometimes, you know, and it's like we get up in the morning and we make our declarations over ourselves like, oh, you know, I'm the head and not the tail. And, you know, God works all things together for my good. God, you're never going to leave me or forsake me. And all of those things are, are good, you know, and, and true. But I want to share one of my favorite promises from God. It's uh, John 16, and it says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And I jokingly say it's my favorite because I don't imagine all of us are standing in the mirror in the morning like, God, I thank you that you promised that I'm gonna experience trouble. <laughs> you know, like raise your hand if that's your declaration. It's not mine, <laughs> You know, but I, I think it's important because Jesus is setting the expectation for us that, hey, there are going to be life situations that come up. There are going to be things that happen that are not comfortable. There are going to be, you know, situations where you run into trouble. There is a real enemy. And so Jesus is, is setting the expectation for us. Life happens. And if you just have rose-colored if you just have rose-colored glasses on the whole time and you're not expecting that things are going to happen, you're going to get very discouraged. You actually have to have a resolve on the inside of you that, hey, I know that there's going to be mountaintops and there's going to be times when it's going to feel like more of a valley. And so I am going to actually cultivate my lifestyle and my relationship with God in a way that pulls me through consistently on the mountaintops and in the valley so that I don't get discouraged. Because I know that Jesus said, we're going to have trouble, but take heart if we are in him, he has overcome the world. That is the key is remaining in him. We have an internal inheritance in heaven with our father. And when we allow fear and anxiety to come, it shifts our perspective from being something that is eternal to something that is temporal. And that's when we start feeling overwhelmed. That's when it starts feeling like too much. So what happens when we face those trials or we face uncomfortable situations? Where do we turn to? What do we go to as our source? What are we allowing to actually provide that comfort? Because I'll tell you what, the world and the ways of this world are very quick to try to fill that gap and to try to provide comfort to you. So how does the world try to do that? The world is really quick to tell you that your personal comfort is the only thing that matters. In America, we idolize comfort and convenience. Everything about the way that our culture and our nation is set up, our apps, you know, the accessibility of everything that we have. And don't get me wrong, you know, some of those things can be nice, but everything about it is to teach us that our comfort is what's most important. Our convenience is what's most important. And at the risk of it being an inconvenience to other people. Other people are a second thought compared to us. Adam and I, um, you know, just got back from a vacation and we were, um, we were in the airport, you know, walking through the airport. And it was really interesting because, you know, we're walking and we're like looking where we're going and every single person that we pass has their head down on their phone and they're like almost running into us. Like there was times when I actually had to physically move because this person that was coming at me was not paying attention. And then it was like, you know, we were outside and um, we were in, in, in Italy, we were outside and we were getting ready to cross the street. And it was like, all these people just started walking and they didn't even look if there was any cars coming. And it was like, again, you know, on their phones. 
And so it's like this whole idea of me, myself, and I in this bubble, and I'm the only one that matters. I'm the only one that's being taken into consideration. And there's a huge lack of awareness for the people that are actually around you. And what you don't understand sometimes, or we don't understand sometimes, is like when we are in that point of being in that bubble, and we're so focused on us and our, our comfortability, we are often making other people uncomfortable by our lack of awareness for them. We are often coming across as sometimes rude or not thoughtful because we are not paying attention to what is actually going on around us. Our world and the way that, you know, American culture has been structured is like everything is immediate. Everything is immediate. You know, you have your Amazon Prime, you have your DoorDash apps. It's like everything can happen right now and it can get delivered to you and you can have instant gratification. And what it's done is it's taught us that we can have that in every single aspect of our life. And it's not true. You know, it's like we pray to God and we're like, oh God, you know, I just need you to answer this prayer. And it's like, he hasn't done it in five minutes and you're freaking out. It's like, okay, maybe he wants you to pray a little bit longer, you know? It's not an Amazon Prime delivery system where God's like, okay, you know, doorbell just rang. Here's your prayer request that you ordered being delivered to your front door. You know, but it's like, if we're not careful, we treat every aspect of our life with that desire for the instant gratification. And I'll tell you what, the greatest growth that you will experience happen in the seasons of waiting. (laughs) I know we don't want to hear that because we're like, man, the seasons of waiting are not fun. That's definitely not the mountaintop, you know? But that's where the real growth happens because there is a perseverance. There's a fortitude that is developed on the inside of you while you are actually waiting that produces something. It produces a grit within you and you know how to stand. You know how to believe. You know how to work hard when you need to work hard for something because it wasn't instant. There was something it cost you. There was a price that you actually had to pay. And then you value it even more. When I was, um, when I was growing up, you know, my mom paid for me to have braces. And um, it was, I, I didn't like the process at all. And then when I had retainers, I didn't wear my retainers. And I accidentally threw my retainers away and realized like three weeks later that I had thrown them away, you know, because I was super on top of wearing them. And then they were gone and I was like, oh, well, you know, now they're gone. And so now as an adult, you know, I've had to, Adam and I just paid for Invisalign and I was like, man, that hurt a little bit, you know, like that was expensive. I mean, it's worth it, but I'm like, I feel like I'm doing this for the second time, you know, but because I actually had to pay something for it, it cost me something. I'll tell you what, I wear my retainers all the time. I'm like, I am getting every dollar and everything that I possibly can out of this because it costs me something. So sometimes in those waiting periods, it's good because it's producing something within you. You know, it's okay for those things to cost us something. You will place a higher value when you have some skin in the game. So... Everything, you know, as I said, everything is sort of about me, 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 you know, here. And I I always see those self-help books and I'm kind of like, you know, the titles. It's like, oh, you know, five steps to a gratifying life or, you know, how I can make myself happy and accomplish everything I want, how I can be successful. And it's like all this stuff about you. And I'm like, man, I don't, I don't see any books that are like learning to live a life of sacrifice so that we can serve others or how to crucify yourself and die, you know, like... (laughs) Like, I don't, I don't know that I would see that on the best-selling list of, you know, books that people are buying. 
But it's true, you know, there's this constant temptation for us to replace the real with the fake and easy. And the world is going to be so quick to try to give it to you. Um, Adam has a personal training client that um, he does personal training on the side. And one of his clients, like she is so crazy fit. Like she's like way older than me and she's way more athletic than I am. But it's funny because every time he teaches her a new exercise, her like natural body response is to choose the path of least resistance. And so like he'll show her something and she'll make slight modifications to make the exercise a little bit easier on herself. And Adam's like, no, like, what are you doing? Like, I see you making this easier on yourself, you know? And it's, it's funny to think about, but if that is our natural human tendency is to choose the path of least resistance, that can be a little bit dangerous if we don't keep it checked, you know, in other areas of our lives. I know anytime I work out with Adam, I always have to make it look like the exercise is super difficult and I'm lifting the most weight that I possibly can because he will come to me across the gym and say, you can do heavier than that. Like I, w I saw you, you can lift more. And I'm like, no, it's so hard. <laughs> It's funny, but it's like, we don't always have a coach there calling out those areas where we are choosing the easy path. Yeah. And so we have to actually be that coach, you know, because it's like, if he didn't come over and say that, like, I'm not going to be lifting more weight. Like I'm lifting what I'm comfortable lifting, <laughs> right? What we're comfortable lifting. And so we actually, that's why it's so important that we develop that discipline on the inside of us and that we surround ourselves with people that are actually willing to walk across the gym and be like, hey, you can lift heavier. I see you not trying hard enough, you know? I'm so grateful for, you know, the girlfriends that I have in my life because they love me enough to say something. And I think sometimes we're like, oh, well, I don't want to get in anyone's business, you know, like I don't want to come across like a certain way. But it's like, if you actually love someone enough and you see them doing something that is not healthy or productive to their spiritual journey, you will say something because you love them. Love will provoke you to say something. And so, you know, even though we don't always have the coach around, like we need to become that coach in our life and understand that our natural desire is going to be to choose the path of least resistance. And so we need to fight that natural desire and actually add a little bit more weight sometimes and get out of our comfort zone because that is how we are going to grow. So there's a few different areas I wanted to go through um, where there's really the world gives us that temptation to replace the real with the fake. The first one is in our physical comfort. I don't know about you guys, but when I'm tired, like the first thing I'm thinking is like, oh, I'm physically tired. I need to sit down and like watch a movie or something. You know, there's a huge difference between relaxing and resting. Relaxing means that you are physically not being active and that you are taking a physical rest. True rest is actually spiritual. That means that you are allowing the spirit of God to bring about refreshing to you. And there's many times, and I'll speak for myself. I don't know if this has ever happened to you guys. You guys may, may be way more spiritual than I am. But there is times when I will go for the natural relaxation when really what I need is the spiritual rest. 
Because the spiritual rest is what is actually going to fulfill us. It is going to strengthen us. It is going to provide what we need. And so there's times when we have that temptation or that inclination like, oh, I'll just chill and watch movies and relax. And again, don't hear what I'm not saying. Like, it's okay to watch movies. But again, we need to be sensitive to the fact of when is it that we actually need spiritual rest? The second area is financial comfort being in control of our financial stability. It can be really easy to see what is going on in the world and when there's economic challenges happening and our initial reaction is to pull back, is to have worry, to have anxieties, to have what ifs. There's this huge desire that we have to be the ones that are actually in control of our financial stability. And yes, we, we need to work, we need to have jobs, we need to be pursuing these things. But at the end of the day, every resource that we have has been given to us by God. It is not your employer that is responsible for your paycheck. It is God that has placed you in that position that is bringing resources through your employer to you. And so we need to remember that when we start facing those uncertainties or having concerns of no, these resources are God's first. And because it is God's first, I am going to continue honoring him by being generous to others, by participating in tithes and offerings, because I'm going to stand on the biblical principles that God has set forth that I know if I am faithful in my giving, that God is going to be faithful in taking care of me and my household. I do not need to take control of the situation. The other area is emotional comfort. Um, so we naturally desire to be accepted. You know, we don't want to be judged. We want to have security in our relationships, but it can often cause us to withhold or hold back sharing things that we need to share to make the relationship healthier because we're afraid of how the other person is going to respond. We're afraid of the rejection or if we have to have that hard conversation that God's like, hey, you know, you really need to have this conversation and we're afraid of how the person's going to respond, if they're going to change the level of relationship that we have. And so we avoid those feelings and we just stuff them. We sweep them under the rug, act like it's going to magically change. It doesn't. <laughs> I will tell you now it doesn't. And then also, you know, there's areas of our life where we've been through pain and trauma and it can be really easy for us to just put a mask on because we want to pretend like everything is okay. You know, people are like, how are you doing? I'm fine. <laughs> you know, I'm like, are you like, you're fine. You sure you're fine. <laughs> Everything's cool. You know, when people have that level of like surface level conversation, I'm like, there's something here. It makes me want to dig, you know, <laughs> like how can we ask deep questions to, you know, figure out what's really going on. But the thing is, is like, it can be really easy for us to want to hide, to not want to reveal those areas to other people. And I'm not saying you reveal them to everyone, right? There is certain people you are meant to have that level of vulnerability with, but all of us are meant to have that level of vulnerability with other people. We are meant to have people that are actually in our lives that are helping us and moving through those things. And the last area of comfort is the comfort of knowing. There is such a desire 
um, to know. And like the world really idolizes knowing. It's like there's all this access to information and you can see people just like are gathering and consuming it. There's no real application to their life of things that are changing or, or you know, are happening because of the knowledge. But there's this, this temptation to gather as much information as you can because if you know, then you can prevent things from happening. And it's this temptation for you to actually take back control of your life, be the one that is directing your steps because it's this desire that we have to not face an uncertain situation. It's like, oh, well, if I just know, then I can be prepared and nothing's gonna happen. And the truth is, is that God is the only one that knows all. And so we have to be plugged into him if we want to know. He is the one that sees the big picture. He is the one that gives us wisdom and guidance. When we hold on to our lives so tightly, it actually prevents him from being able to move in our lives. Because we're saying, hey, I trust my judgment more than I trust yours. And so it's that temptation to know. If we do not renew our minds, we will start acting like people of this world in our pursuit of comfort and convenience. And the truth is, is that we are called to be set apart. People should look at your life and see something different about it. They should see something. They're like, wow, you know, like that crazy situation just happened and you're so peaceful. Like, how is that? How is it that you're able to have peace? There should be something different about the way that we carry ourselves. Adam recently shared a quote with me that um, has really stuck with me. It's from a gentleman who is an atheist and a magician by profession, but it's a really interesting perspective from an atheist on um, Christianity. So it says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize, meaning go out and evangelize the gospel. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, an atheist who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I know that it's really heavy to think about, but one of the biggest pitfalls of us pursuing our own comfort is we can compromise on our values because we're afraid of what other people are going to think. We can be concerned that, oh, if I share this part of myself or if I share about Jesus with them, it's gonna make it socially awkward and what are they gonna think? And I love this, um, this quote from this gentleman who's an atheist because it really brings a level of sobriety and seriousness to it. Like if we truly believe that God is who he says that he is, how could we not share him with people who don't know him? Like that is our responsibility. And yes, there's different ways to go about that sharing. But if we truly believe that in our hearts, like we should be so passionate and fired up about making sure that other people experience everlasting life and caring zero about it being socially awkward because their salvation is more important. But it's like that tendency can be like, oh, it's gonna make it uncomfortable, you know? 
There is a biological desire built into each of us to feel accepted, to be wanted, to bond with our social pack. But my question is like, why is it that we sometimes try so hard to bond with the wrong social pack? You know, we care so much about what people think that barely know us, people we may never see again, and yet we're unbothered about what Jesus is going to think about us after that interaction. And so it's like, we have a responsibility. There's times when God is going to put something uncomfortable and inconvenient on your heart. There's so many times when God's like, I want you to go talk to this stranger and tell them about me, you know? And I'm like, great, that sounds super uncomfortable. (laughs) That is for sure socially awkward, you know? And I'm like, really? Like me, you want me? You know, it's, I mean, I'm just being honest. That's my natural response is like, wow, that's uncomfortable, But it's like we have to move past our natural response to the level of seriousness and their salvation matters more than me feeling uncomfortable because it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about them knowing the God that I know and me being able to represent that God. And yes, that is gonna be uncomfortable. That is gonna be inconvenient sometimes. There's been times that I've been driving down the side of the road and God's like, I want you to go pull over and talk to that woman who's experiencing homeless right now. You know, and I'm like, okay, you know, I'm on the way to a meeting. You know, but it's like, there's, there's times when God is going to send you to people, send you into situations. And if you're too concerned about being comfortable and it being convenient for you, you're going to miss opportunities because I don't know about you guys, but there's been times when God has sent people to me at the beginning of my spiritual walk. And I wouldn't be here today if that person hadn't said yes. So what happens when we choose to get uncomfortable and trust God? I want to look at the story of Elijah, um, where he meets a widow. And right before this verse, um, King Ahab was reigning and Elijah was a prophet that had sort of just come onto the scene. Um, A lot of the kingdoms were worshiping Baal and pagan gods. And so there wasn't really anyone that was still worshiping the one true God. So Elijah, the prophet came and he, you know, God gave him, he declared a judgment against the people that had all turned away from God, essentially saying that there was a huge drought that was going to come, that it wasn't going to rain. And um, obviously King Ahab was not like pleased with the fact that now all of his land was going to experience a drought. So after Elijah declares this judgment against the land, um, he actually, God actually has him go and hide by this brook for his safety because Ahab was very angry. And while he was at this brook, ravens brought him bread and meat. And then the brook dried up because there was a drought. (laughs) So all the water dried up and God said, okay, I want you to go to this specific village. And there's a widow there that's going to feed you. So we're going to pick up in verse 8, 1 Kings 17, 8. Then the Lord said to Elijah, go and live in the village of Zarephath near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. So he went to Zarephath. As he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks and he asked her, would you please bring me a little water in a cup? As she was going to get it, he called to her, bring me a bite of bread too. So this area, this region that he was sent to is where Queen Jezebel was from. This is a Gentile territory. So none of the people in this territory are worshiping God. They're all worshiping pagan gods. 
And the widow that he met was very, very poor. During these times, widows were notorious for being extremely, extremely poor. But this woman, um, the fact that she was actually outside gathering sticks when firewood was so accessible, I mean, she was like really, really poor. And so Elijah is a Jewish stranger, and this is a pagan widow. The whole situation looks incredibly improbable. Like this lady is actually going to be able to provide food to Elijah. But I want you to think about the faith that Elijah had to have after, you know, God instructed him to go to this widow and ask for this. She didn't know God. So it was a total stepping out in faith. Verse 12 says, but she said, I swear by the Lord, your God, that I don't have a single piece of bread in the house. And I have only a handful of flour left in the jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal, and then my son and I will die. But Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you've said, but make bread for me first. Then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, there will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. So it's interesting is the woman starts off by saying that she, I swear by the Lord, your God. So she acknowledged that God may exist, but she also was very clear. This is Elijah's God. This is not her God. Um, what's also really interesting is Elijah, basically after she was like, I'm getting ready to die. And so is my son. He was like, okay, that's great. Do what you said, but feed me first. I could just imagine this woman is like, why did I come gather sticks right now? Like I literally could have come at any other time and avoided this situation and not met this crazy man who's asking me to feed him my last meal. And then my son and I are going to die. Like I could just imagine what was going through her head. Also, God told Elijah that a widow was going to feed him. So Elijah's probably wondering, like, did I, did I come to the wrong widow? This lady doesn't seem to know that she is meant to feed me, God. You know, did you deliver the message to her? So Elijah has tremendous faith in this situation to aggressively push that he needs to be fed before the widow and her son need to be fed. And then the widow, you know, has to make a decision what she's going to do. The widow does not know God. She does not have any prior faith experience to pull upon. So when Elijah says that, you know, God is going to give you flour and oil after you feed me, she's probably thinking that's your God. You know, your God may give you that, but that's not my God. She has no faith to believe that promise because she doesn't know God. Verse 15 says, so she did as Elijah said. And she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. So it's just amazing the risk of faith that both of them took in this situation. Being a mom, I'm like, I couldn't imagine having a kid and some random guy is like, give me bread before you feed your kid. I'd be like, you're tripping. There's no way. Like... <laughs> who are you? I don't even know you. You know, we don't even believe in the same God. Like you're demanding that I feed you above my kid and we're getting ready to die. Like it sounds a little rude, you know, 
But Elijah knew what God had said, and he knew the promise of God that if the widow actually did this and she stepped out and got uncomfortable, because that's uncomfortable, and took that risk of faith, that they would have plenty of oil and that they would be taken care of. All of the oil and flour would be provided until the drought was over. So the story doesn't end after this big faith move. I want to go down to verse 17. It says, sometime later, the woman's son became sick. He grew worse and worse, and finally he died. Then she said to Elijah, oh man of God, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point, my, point out my sins and kill my son? <laughs> Quite an accusation. <laughs> but Elijah replied, give me your son. And he took the child's body from her arms, carried him up the stairs to the room where he was staying, and laid the body on his bed. Then Elijah cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, why have you brought tragedy to this widow who has opened her home to me, causing her son to die? And he stretched himself out over the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, please let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's prayer and the life of the child returned and he revived. Then Elijah brought him down from the upper room and gave him to his mother. Look, he said, your son is alive. Then the woman told Elijah, now I know for sure that you are a man of God and that the Lord truly speaks through you. I'm not going to begin to explain that I know why he prayed in the way that he prayed. I feel like that is a teacher Chan sermon series, potentially, <laughs> not a Melanie sermon series. But what's really amazing is that through that unorthodox method of prayer, God revives the child, and this turns into such a testimony for the widow of who the one true God is. But what's really interesting is, how many times have we seen the faithfulness of God come through in a situation, and then all of a sudden we hit another uncomfortable patch, and we literally forget everything we just learned? It's like over here, we're like, God, yes, you brought the breakthrough. I'm rejoicing on the mountain. And the next day we hit a bump in the road and we're like, God, where are you? Like you've completely forsaken me and abandoned me. And it's like we so quickly can revert back to forgetting what it is that God has actually brought us through. I love, you know, Humberto's message this morning as testimony because those things are so important for us to hold on to, not just our own testimonies of faith, but also the testimonies of faith within the body of believers. If God has done it for you in the past, he will do it again. And if he's done it for someone else, he's gonna do it for you. And so we need to have that on the inside of us as an anchor to our faith that we are not swayed when situations come that are uncomfortable, we get into the uncomfortability and we're like, okay, God, are you trying to stretch me? Are you trying to grow me? What is it that you're trying to teach me in this situation? How is there an opportunity for me to grow through this? And we remind ourselves of the times that God has come through for us in the past. And we use that to bolster our faith and actually get something out of the season of uncomfortability. Because I promise there's something that God is wanting to do within you. Ephesians 6.13 says, Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. I will tell you, we are in a battle. 
the question is not whether there is a battle going on. There is a spiritual battle going on. We are all in it. Whether you believe in Christ or not, you are in the battle. Your decision comes to what side are you going to stand on? And I don't know about you guys. I want to be on the overcoming side. Amen. We have access to that. So the last thing I want to go through is how do we access that true source of comfort? We already know that there's going to be seasons and times that come of uncomfortability. There's going to be times that come when we are being stretched. So instead of us choosing the path of least resistance, the easy path, and being motivated toward that, how can we actually position ourselves to grow in those seasons of uncomfortability? It's not about getting comfortable right away. It's about getting the strength to get through the uncomfortability. And so John 14 verse 15 says, if you really love me, you will keep or obey my commands and I will ask the father and he will give you another comforter, a counselor, a helper, an intercessor, an advocate, a strengthener and stand by that he may remain with you forever. The Holy Spirit is our key to getting through the uncomfortability. The Holy Spirit is the one that actually provides that true source of comfort. The Holy Spirit is our counselor. He's able to give us guidance in all situations. And I promise he's the best counselor you'll ever go to, has the best advice and wisdom, something that you can stand on. He is a helper. The word for helper is paraclete, which really means that he has been called to come alongside of us. I don't know about you guys, but that's very comforting to think about the fact that the Holy Spirit has actually been called to come alongside of me. There's no situation that I'm in that I'm facing it alone. There's no time when I'm feeling worry or anxiety or pain or discomfort when the Holy Spirit has abandoned me. He is right there with me, willing and able to provide the comfort and the strength that I need to get through it. We have to be the ones that acknowledge hey, Holy Spirit, you're right here. <laughs> you know, when we're in our head and we're so focused on what's going on, we feel isolated and we feel alone. We have to be intentional to say, no, the Holy Spirit is right next to me. The Holy Spirit has been called to come alongside of me to see me through this exact situation. The Holy Spirit is our advocate. So he is the one that is actually pleading our case. He's come to provide strength to us. When we are feeling like, man, I don't know how we're gonna get through this. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is there to strengthen you. He is there to empower you, to provide you with everything that you need. And he's our standby, which means that he is ready for duty or immediate deployment. I love that. I'm like, man, I just imagine him. He's like, I'm ready, I'm ready. Like tap me in, you know, like I'm ready, send me. All the time, he's there ready, waiting by the side of each of you. All we need to do is acknowledge that. John 14, 17 says, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, welcome or take to its heart because it does not see him or know him and recognize him. But you know him and recognize him for he lives with you constantly and will be in you. This is the, the real key right here is that the Holy Spirit is there to show us truth. But it clearly says that the world cannot receive him. 
So if we are operating in the ways of this world, if we are relying on the world to provide us that comfort, that means that we are not gonna be able to hear or receive the Holy Spirit. We as believers are meant to know him, to have an intimate understanding of what it means to actually have the Holy Spirit by our side. But we have to be very careful. We don't start operating on the ways of this world because the moment that we do, we lose our understanding. That understanding is what sets us apart. That understanding is what gives us peace in situations where other people don't have peace. That understanding is what gives us the strength in the situations where we're feeling like we're not going to make it through. It is important for us to understand we have to operate by the spirit of truth and not the ways of this world so that we can maintain that level of understanding. God is faithful to always provide a way out. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Scripture is very clear that we're going to experience those temptations and those trials. But God is there for us. He's going to provide a way out. It's not about them not happening. It's about how do we handle them when we're actually in them. We have to remember the Holy Spirit is like our cheat code to life. So it's like, if you're like, man, I don't know the answer, like your cheat code, Holy Spirit's right there for you. He's there to advocate, to strengthen you, to counsel you, to give you guidance, to advocate on your behalf. But we have to acknowledge him and actually allow the spirit of truth to be the one that is prompting our decision-making. When we are feeling uncomfortable, when God is prompting us to get into a place of like growing and stretching and be inconvenienced a little bit, We have to allow the spirit of truth to be our guiding force on the inside of us. He is the one that is going to see us through. So today we've talked about what is comfort and why is it that our bodies have that natural reaction to choose the path of least resistance. We talked about different ways that the world tries to provide a fake and easy in the place of what is real and true. And how if we allow the fake and easy to be what is actually we're pursuing after and bringing us that comfort and that security, that we're going to miss the spirit of truth. We're going to lose that understanding. We talked about Elijah and the widow and built our faith about what happens when we choose to get uncomfortable and we take a risk and we step out in faith. And we talked about how the Holy Spirit is truly the comforter. He is the strengthener. He is our standby. He is the one that provides everything that we need in every situation. So I want to close with one of the verses I shared at the beginning. John 16, 33. I have told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. All right, let's go ahead and stand to our feet maybe say some uncomfortable prayers this morning. You've been listening to the Freedom House podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you would like more information about our house, please visit our website, fhus.org. Thanks again for tuning in and please consider sharing this podcast with your friends and family. See you next time.